Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open your Bibles up, please, to Romans 6 as we go through the book of Romans. Um, This week we pick up with verse 8 of chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 8. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Now, our text begins with the words, now. And so, you know that you're moving on. You know, you've stopped at the stoplight, it turns green, now we're moving on. And then the second word is a word that we would be inclined to be dismissive of. It's the little conjunction, if. Um, And there are a number of ways that this could have been written without using the word if, and let me point them out to you. He could have said, knowing, now. Knowing, as in knowing we have died with Christ. It would have been a charitable assumption that most of those he was writing had living faith. He could also have written since, as in since we have died with Christ. Again, a charitable assumption of most of his readers and listeners. He could even have written all. Now, all who have died with Christ... And this would have had the, the, the nice uh, effect of rendering the whole thing impersonal, all. Because it's a hypothetical construct. You know, he's talking about a group of people. He doesn't have to decide whether the people he's talking to are in that group of people or not. He just says, now, all those who have died in Christ. But you remember I said a couple weeks ago that the Apostle Paul consistently identifies himself with the people that he is teaching and writing to. And so he uses over and over and over again the word we. And you see that here. Now, if we have died. So all doesn't work. It renders it too impersonal. And so then we move back and say, all right, if we believe that the Bible, every word, the plenary verbal inspiration, every word is inspired, we ought to note the word if. It's conditional. Yeah, in a sense, it's an assumption, and that's what all the commentators say. Well, he's assuming that the people he's writing are all saved, all right? But let's look more closely at this phrase, have died with Christ. So the conditional if points forward to have died with Christ. Now, if we have died with Christ, and so then you think, okay, what is he talking about dying with Christ? Well, you remember, last week we talked about Jesus saying, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross. And we talked about how all of sanctification is death. It's very, very painful. 
Sanctification is. It is the Christian life. It is a process that's painful of God making us holy. Are you all with me? Did you get some pain this week? And this is referred to by the Apostle Paul as death. And we'll see it again in the text. But he's not talking about the process of sanctification here. I just got done telling you that that's death. And so you think, well, we've died with Christ. Yes, day by day we take up our cross and follow him. But notice the tense. The verb tense is, if we have died. He wouldn't talk that way. If, the way he'd talk if it was sanctification is he's if we're dying. He doesn't. He says, if we have died. Now, listen. You must learn to read. It's not a snob thing. The highest literacy rate there ever was in the world was colonial New England. Why? Because they knew their children needed to read the Bible. And so guess what? Highest literacy rate ever. And you need to read with comprehension. Okay? In other words, you need to understand what you're reading so that you will observe that if is not all, that if is not since, you need to observe the tense of the verb. Is, are we talking about something that's done did? Did done? Or are we talking about something done be doing? Or are we talking about something that at some point will, will done be done? Past, present, future. You even need to discriminate between something that is present and complete in the present, and something that is presently be, be, be doing. Something that is ongoing. You speak this way, right? We all speak this way. We all are very good at speaking this way. You know, I, I've been doctoring. That's one of my favorite constructions. You know, I never had heard about doctoring. But I've been doctoring with Dr. Spady, you know. That means that you didn't see him once in the emergency room, but you go to him regularly, and he takes care of your physical problems. Now, I want you to go back to the text and look at the words. If we, notice the word we, isn't that sweet? The Apostle Paul is including himself with us. If we have died. In other words, he's speaking about something that's complete. That's regeneration. If we have died, that is being born again. That is having the Holy Spirit give us new life in Christ. That is conversion. That's regeneration. That's what the whole book of Romans has been about until now. That is when we finally are overwhelmed with our sin and we run to the cross. And God uses faith to convert us. And the faith is a gift. Okay? If we have died, and so the first step we take, if we're adults, is we're buried in the water of baptism. We've died. The imagery is clear. 
we're passive. We're brought under the water, and then we're raised to newness of life. Okay? The Apostle Paul says, now, if we have died, if we've been born again, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, if we have, if we have repented and believed, okay? Don't ever lose sight of the fact that nobody comes to God because they were born in a garage, as, you know, as, as preachers would say. You know, just because you're born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. Remember Jesus said to the Pharisee, unless you are born again, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. God has no grandchildren. Now, don't misunderstand me. We should expect that God will give our children faith, but not because they were born in a garage. Didn't make them a car, okay? Being born into a Christian family can make us a Christian, but it doesn't make us a Christian. Are you with me? Okay. Don't ever escape this if we died. Can you imagine sitting there listening to the Apostle Paul and saying, well, I didn't have to die. I'm so glad that I grew up in a home and in a church and in a, in a biblical tradition that you didn't have to die if you were a child of the covenant. Although I've never known a time in my life when I have not been a Christian. And so the Apostle Paul says to him, wait, 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 wait. Have you died? Well, what do you mean, have I died? I remember when Mary Lee was starting Lighthouse, we had a teacher who was very enthusiastic about the wonderful doctrine of being born again by the Spirit of God. So do you remember this? <laughs> and so she, she asked her children, the children in her class, it was a very young class, if they, if they had been born again. And oh, man, there was a mother of a child in that class who was furious. Why? Well, their tradition was, you're baptized, you're a Christian. And so Mary Lee had to sort of, <laughs> sort of weave that one, you know? So here's the question, everybody. Have you died? Have you died in Christ? Yeah, baptism is the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, yes. Baptism and the Lord's Supper do do things. But that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you, have you died? Have you died? Have you died to your sin, your self-importance, and uh, <laughs> all that crud? And have you been born again by the Spirit of God? You, a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? You, a Presbyterian pastor, and you don't know these things? Now, if we have died with Christ. I'm now back at the word if. Isn't it sweet that the Apostle Paul doesn't take for granted that everybody he's writing is a Christian? Last week, after I talked about the issue of assurance and sanctification and how many there are who claim the name of Christ who will not pursue holiness and sanctification, who have no fruit, remember that. And I said, the Bible does not comfort those people. You can't say to those people who have no fruit, 
from the Spirit of God, well, you were baptized, look to your baptism, because Jesus says, by their fruit you shall know them. The Bible never causes us to become what Luther called without compunction of conscience. God does not exist to be our patsy. Okay? Now, what's a patsy? Well, patsy, I was thinking during the first service, I know what a patsy is. A patsy is a physician to a hypochondriac. All that matters with a hypochondriac is that you agree with the patient. They self-diagnose, they self-therapize, or therapies, or whatever it is. They self-medicate, you know, Mary Lee's father. (laughs) This is one of my favorite moments in Dad Taylor's life. (laughs) So he gets sick, you know, he's probably 88, somewhere around that. And he goes to Central DuPage Hospital, and, you know, I don't know why we were there, but we were there you know, and we get in the hospital, and dad is sort of frantic about his, uh, his medications, because he's hidden them, so that none of the people in the hospital know what he's taking and when, <laughs> you know, and I mean, he has all his medications, and of course, the most important thing were his sleeping pills, right? Listen, Nobody should want a doctor who's a patsy. Nobody should want a doctor who simply tells you what you want to hear. He's not helpful. Ann Wegner and I agreed during the first service that that is the kind of dentist you want. (laughs) How much awful or is it to have a pastor who's a patsy? And how much awful it would be to have the Spirit of God inspire Scripture in such a way that it says what we want to hear. Don't ever turn the Bible into your words and your thoughts, because it's not that. There's not one of us here who would write, now, if we have died in Christ we would all say that every time people show up in church, we should treat everybody in church as if they're already Christians. We should never question the salvation of people in church. Now, you should question my salvation. I should question yours. Now, does that mean that I should berate you as a father, say you're a young man, and just tell you that you're no good, dirty dog? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that, that there's a famous saying that hypocrites are known not even by the angels, but only by God. Hypocrisy is an extreme danger, and sacraments have always been central to the projects of hypocrites. If, and so what is the Apostle Paul saying? Well, He's assuming, but he's also questioning. Do you see that? That word, if, works both ways. If we have, the assumption is we have, but the assumption also is that every single one of you should be asking yourself, am I truly in the faith? Jesus never stopped doing this. The apostles never stopped doing this. 
They were talking to good church people, and in their preaching they said, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Now, is that an if or what? Do you get my point? It's very, very difficult to read the Bible without having pangs of conscience and questions. And that is your right to have those pangs of conscience in question. And any preacher, any elder, any parent that tries to rob you of those pangs of conscience is, is healing you falsely. They're saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Give your children the privilege of questioning the condition of their soul. Are you all with me? It's hard. I've often said that the most... Uh, controversial thing any pastor does is call into question the condition of the souls in his church and his preaching. But you, you don't begin to be a faithful shepherd until you do that. Okay? And the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, now, if we have died with him. You know, I could go off and I could clarify my comments and I could say to you, now some of you are always questioning your salvation, and you need to stop it. Just stop it. You know? And doesn't that make you feel better? But he doesn't say that here. Now, if we have died with... Now, some of you are always tempted to think the worst thing about yourself. Now, just stop it, stop it, stop it. We believe that we shall, you know? Scripture is not always cleaning up the messes it creates. It lets them hang stinking. All right, you're with me now. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Again, the we. And what a sweet word, we believe. Believe and hope and faith are all things that are not certain. I'm not saying that our life in Christ is not certain. I'm saying that the word believe is used to show us that there is an element of faith. And faith is the evidence of things not seen. Would you understand me if I said that you have not seen that you will, future tense, also live with Christ? Even the future tense shows this. If it's future tense, there's something not yet about it. Okay? We believe that we shall also live with him. And so when we repeat the Apostles' Creed, when we repeat the Nicene Creed, how do they both end? We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. That's how they end. We believe. We shall also live with him. Now, once again... There is a connotation. A connotation is an implication. A connotation is something that the word doesn't necessarily contain in itself, but because you've got a brain, you understand that there's larger meanings to that word. And here we have live with him, and, and you know it's future tense, but you know also there's a sense in which day by day we live with Jesus, right? To see him more clearly, right? You remember? knowing that Christ, so now it's speaking about Jesus, verse 9, having been, so we're talking about past tense, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. 
what's going on here is a parallel is being set up between Jesus and us. And so he's trying to explain to us that we are going to live and that we did die and that Jesus did die and Jesus is never going to die again. All right? Knowing that Christ, having been, past tense, raised from the dead, is never to die again. Now, there are a lot of people in the Bible who were raised from the dead and died again. Who? Well, there was the widow of Zarephath's son that Elijah raised from the dead by the power of God. There was the widow's son that Jesus raised, Jairus' daughter. The most notorious one in the Bible was Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And then you remember on the day of the crucifixion, there was an earthquake, and you remember what happened? Tons of the godly were raised from the dead. One of the most intriguing statements in Scripture, because you wonder, who? And how long did they survive? You know, were they raised from the dead and then fell dead again immediately? Or did they live another 90 years? Or, you know, we're just left hanging. We have absolutely no idea, right? And then, in the, new, in the book of Acts, you remember Tabitha Dorcas? And then you remember the, uh, the favorite person raised from the dead of every pastor, which was Eutychus, who fell asleep during a sermon. <laughs> and that'll teach all of you to fall asleep during sermons. It's a joke. And every single one of these people was raised from the dead, and then they died again. But it says here that Jesus, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. And then it adds this statement, death no longer is master over him. And this word master is the same word lord. So you could translate it, death is no longer lord, curious, all right? You, those of you who have sung in classical sacred concerts, you know that you will sing the, the Kyrie eleison. And that is, Lord, have mercy. It's a particular uh, construction in a lot of sacred music. Well, what it's saying is, Lord, Master, and both of them have very clear meanings of what? Authority. Jesus no longer has the authority of death over him. Death is not his master. Death is not his Lord. You and I still have death over us. And in our federal head, Adam, we got what we deserved. God said, the day you eat of this, the fruit of this tree, I have denied you, you will surely die. Now, do you think that the world that you live in the midst of accepts God's judgment that if we break his law, we will die? Would you describe the world you live in as a world that honors God by confessing that it is good and right that we die? Would you describe the world you live in as a world that has a theological, biblical understanding of death? If you were to choose between going to a wedding of two lesbians or going to a normal evangelical funeral today.
Now, of course, I don't really mean it. But I'm asking you, how much does it drive you crazy to sit through church funerals today? The world does not fear God and does not honor him. And consequently, everything the world does is an attempt to deny the truths of Scripture. This is how you understand the world. The world is denying the truths of God. That's how you know the world. That's how you know worldlings. It doesn't matter if they're in church or outside of a church. And so what the world does is the world approaches death as if it is natural. All right? That death is just the natural evolution of a metabolism. It's just, it's how nature works, right? And by that, you think that they're meaning that they recognize that death is everywhere and that when the prayer book says, in the midst of life, we live in death, that the world's saying, yes, in the midst of life, we live in death. No, what they're really doing is denying the horror of death. The world cannot handle the fact that God decreed that if he ate of the, tree of the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he would die. The world can't handle the fact that because Adam died, all of us die. That all of us die in Adam. The world can't handle the fact that death is an enemy, a terrible enemy. The world can't handle pain. The world can't handle tears. The world can't handle anything about God's judgment. The world can't handle the consequences of sin. The world is in complete rebellion against God. And so, one of the tragic consequences of this is death has all its meaning removed. And that's why you can't stand going to funerals. Because funerals aren't funerals anymore. What are they? They're celebrations of life. Right? Sorry. I know I'm disappointing you, but I'm a preacher of Scripture. I'm not a preacher of your trivialities. And listen, as I look back on my life, I was once asked in in an application of some sort to say what it was in my life that I was most thankful for. And, you know, it's an interesting question. In your life, what are you most thankful for? My wife my children, this, that, and the other thing. But it was worded in such a way, it wasn't asking about people or things. It was asking you a spiritual question, and I got thinking about what spiritually am I most thankful for in my life? And I realized, and I wrote this down, what I'm most thankful for is all the death I went through when I was a child. I'm most thankful that my three brothers died, and then When we were sitting at the dinner table, my grandmother died. I'm most thankful how familiar I was with death as I was growing up. Why? Because it burned eternity into my eyeballs, and it it absolutely protected me from being fake. Because death, if you really look at it for what it is, death is extremely nasty. Every time somebody you love dies, you know that God did not intend it. I think it's so perverse that I'm going to have to die right at the time when my grandchildren are firing on all cylinders. 
God didn't make that. God decreed it, and it's a judgment. There's nothing right or good about death. It's an enemy. I've gotten to the point in my life where I can remember, precisely remember, the feelings, the emotions, the thoughts, even the body, my body, when I hear somebody I love is going to die. I remember exactly that. It's become a muscle memory for me. Death is horrible. And my dear wife this morning, uh, (laughs) I got up and... I had to go upstairs to get something before I came to church. And I was turning off the fan on the, on, the, on, the, on the chest of drawers that Mary Lee had put some papers on. And I remember looking at the papers, just glancing across them as I turned the fan off. And I remember this sort of, you know, feeling coming over me. And then I thought, And I looked at the papers, and there was the name Jonathan Baker. Well, <laughs> Jonathan Baker, Stephen, Stephen's father, was a wonderful gift to this church. One of the things he gave us was writing wills for several of the pastors. And my obnoxious wife, laugh. I love her. Laugh. It's funny. My obnoxious wife had left our will out on top of the chest of drawers so I I would see it before I left the home to come preach to you. I mean, she's clueless. Is that really what a pastor wants to see when he's going to come and preach to you? You know, his will? I don't know why you had that out there, but I think you may be thinking that one or the other of us or both of us may be, you know. (laughs) Listen, I don't mind her having it out there at all. That's a joke. Not at all. But this is the way we are. When we go in the hospital, we have a living will, And we sign the living will saying, don't keep me alive if I have to be tube fed. Don't keep me alive if you have to give me water because I want to kick off. I don't want to be a burden on anybody. And then when we die, there's there's actually a body, you know, a body. He'd be dead, right? But then we cover it up and send it to professionals, And then, because really the death occurred at an inconvenient time, we schedule the dealing with the body for three months from now or three weeks from now, you know, when the finals are over. Okay? And then, I mean, he'd be dead, right? And then we're up and we're having the service, and what do we call it? It's a celebration of life. It's not a funeral. You know, it's a celebration of life with all of the triviality of the Western world. Making jokes, telling jokes he told, you know, it's a cel- he'd be dead. And so what do we do next? Well, we, you know, you know close the coffin, stupid, <laughs> you know. And then it's not enough to close the coffin. Then get the coffin out of here, stupid He'd be dead. Get rid of it. 
And then we cremate it because, I mean, honestly, if we have a celebration of life, we put it off for three months, we close the coffin, we get the coffin out of the celebration of life, who in their right mind wants to go to the grave and throw dirt? And the reason we do all this stuff is we defy God and we will not submit to his decree that the minute our federal head Adam took of the fruit and ate it, we die. And so we do everything we can to render death trivial and light. And I hate it. Absolutely hate it. Because to me, there's no more precious service especially than the service at the graveside. In the midst of life, we live in death. And of who may we seek for relief, O Lord, but of thou who for our sins are justly displeased. Oh, the hope of that statement. That somebody will tell the truth that death is because God is displeased with our sins. And he has not left us in them. But he has buried us in baptism so we can rise to eternal life. Why are we so trivial about such precious things? All of you should have the privilege I have of worshiping at the back of the church every Sunday at the 11 o'clock service behind Charlie and Susie. Because Charlie and Susie are living every moment of every day in the knowledge of death. Okay, Damocles' sword is hovering over Charlie's head. Now, it's hovering over yours, too. And there have been a lot of people that have died before Charlie dies. But what a wonderful gift that God has given Charlie and Susie and Jeff and Amanda, the whole family. And you say, you know, if my dad were here right now listening to me, he had a good sense of humor. And if my dad were here right now, he would say to me, well, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> you know. <laughs> All right. But you watch them worshiping, and you watch when, precisely when Charlie lifts his hands. Do you know when he lifted his hands this morning? It was the last verse of the hymn. Why was it the last verse of the hymn? What does the last verse of the hymn always point to? It always points to the resurrection. Almost always it has the name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it has the resurrection. You know? And this morning, when it came to death and eternity, Charlie's hand went up higher. Because it's living reality for him that soon he will be with the Lord. He has set his heart. Come on. He has set his heart on pilgrimage. On things above. And I have to tell you that I do not appreciate Charlie lifting his hands higher when it comes to to death and the resurrection. Why? I don't want to lose Charlie. I just don't want to lose him. I don't want Susie to lose him. I don't want Amanda to lose him. I don't want Megan, Maya, 
but we have this statement that death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so I really think that it's fair to say that Christian faith uh, never, never gets far from death. And the faith of those who are not believers is a faith that death can be controlled, cosseted, can be pressed down, can be surrounded, can be uh, hidden, can be put on professionals, can be taken in our own hands, having the doctor help us commit suicide. You know, it's so pathetically weak. And yet, at that precise moment where they force the doctor to help them commit it, so they're absolutely convinced how strong they are. You know, it's like the people that, I'm not going to be a burden on anybody, or, you know, it's just so, so, so weak. Because what they're doing is shaking their fist in the presence of the living God, who is appointed every single second that you and I will live. He's even appointed their rebellion and offing themselves. And you say, oh no, he doesn't appoint bad things. And I say, well, we'll get to that in a couple chapters. Be patient. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And then do you know what comes next? little conjunction, a preposition called what? But. But. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? We die with Christ, we live with Christ. We died with Christ, we will live with Christ. Are you all with me? And then, here's how the text ends. Even so, all right, given what I've just said, even so, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. <laughs> That's the point. The point is for you to carry your cross daily. That's the whole point of this whole section of Romans we're coming to. You are to daily take up your cross and die. You are to constantly die. You are to cultivate your ability to constantly die. You are to plead with God to give you the ability to cultivate the ability to constantly die. You are to take up your cross daily and follow him. That's the whole point of this section. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's put you in the instapot, okay? And he's added enough water to be able to create pressure. And then he puts it on max, And you're in there. And the Apostle Paul has pushed Max. And it heats up. And he has you in between death and life. And he's telling you, get cooked. Die. Live for God. Don't try to take away the pressure. 
don't think that if one day you go forward for the 10th, 20th, or 1,000th time, that then you won't have to die anymore. You know how we do that. You know, we think, well, if I really commit my life to Jesus Christ this time, then maybe I can stop dying. Then maybe I won't sin anymore. Maybe finally I'll be done. And I won't have to take up my cross anymore. You know? No, uh uh-uh. That's not the way it works. I want to read to you um, something that Calvin writes on this. Well, I have two places where it's marked. Yeah, here it is. He says this. He says, he's talking about dying with Christ, and he says, this emphasis on sanctification, okay, this emphasis on becoming holy, this emphasis on confessing our sins, and once again believing in the shed blood of Jesus. He says, this is not, as we have already said, because our flesh is mortified. Okay, this, this emphasis on sanctification is not because our flesh is mortified to us in a single moment. What's mortification? It's killing. This is not because our flesh, which stands for our desire for sin, this is not because our desire for sin is killed in a single moment. All right? He says, but because we must not shrink from putting it to death. Okay? Don't shrink from putting it to death. You are a real piece of work. Okay? I am a real piece of work. Okay? And so it has to be put to death. That's, that's what Christians are. We're on a pilgrimage. And if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, how, how would you describe Pilgrim's Progress? This is this constant putting to death of everything inside of him. So what? By the time he gets to heaven, he be ready. He's so weary of the battle. And God gives him glory. All right, let's come to the Lord's table.